Yeah, we're looking at uh, Lord's Day 8, Q&A 24 and 25. So, Christian, how are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Amen. You may be seated. And then our sermon text this evening is from 1 Corinthians 8. And we will look at uh, verses 1 through 13. So 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food food as really offered to an idol, And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will not eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us now pray and ask for his help. O Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your your scriptures are read, your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. Well, since this is our evening catechetical service, I'm going to do something that I probably wouldn't do in our morning service. I'm going to ask you a question that is so thought-provoking, 
it will probably give you a headache. So brace yourself. You ready for this? The question is, what was God doing before creation? What was God doing before creation? Now, this is a perplexing question, because although Genesis 1-1 starts at the beginning of time, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we nevertheless learn from this verse that God is eternal. He was before the beginning. This means that there is an eternal prequel to our story. And Genesis 1-1, it says nothing about it other than that there was God and him alone. So this brings us back to our question. What was God doing before creation? Now, one theologian, quite annoyed with this question, answered, God was preparing hell for those who pry into such mysteries. And I think we can, we can get his point, right? We must not lock ourselves up in an ivory tower and try to speculate about mysteries that God has not yet revealed. But has God revealed anything in his word about this? And I think the answer is yes. And we find at least part of the answer in the most peculiar place in a discussion about food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8. So let us now consider this this thought-provoking question through the lens of 1 Corinthians 8. And it is important to note that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is contrasting knowledge with love. And a few chapters later, Paul will make this contrast again in chapter 13, when he says, And if I have prophetic powers, and and hear this part, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So even all knowledge without love, is nothing. But in our text, in chapter 8, I think Paul says it even more strikingly. Because Paul, in essence, says that knowledge that is not in the service of love, it's not just nothing. It's actually opposed to love. And we see this with the, the differing effects of knowledge and love. So this this kind of knowledge that Paul's talking about here, it puffs up. It gives you an exaggerated view of yourself. Makes you think, I am great. But love, well, love is not interested in yourself at all. In fact, love denies oneself. It gives up yourself. It puts others before yourself. So love, it does not puff yourself up. No, love builds others up. And the Corinthian church, well, they were so much like us. They wanted glory. 
They wanted to be seen as great, to operate in powerful spiritual gifts. They even divided Christ's church based off of their own personal preferences of greatness. Some preferred the way Paul put it, while others preferred Apollos. In the end, they wanted the same thing. They wanted the gifts, they wanted the glory, they wanted the greatness. And this is what Paul has in mind when he speaks of knowledge. Here, here knowledge is a knowledge that is not in the service of love, but it's a knowledge in the service of greatness. And Paul says in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So if your knowledge leads you to think that you're great, to imagining that you actually know something, Paul says, "Eh, you don't really know it as you ought to know. Because true saving knowledge of God leads not to thinking that we are great, but to thinking that God is great and to love him and his people accordingly. And so, Paul says, if you think you know, well, you you don't. But then look at verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What a statement. You can try to be great by acquiring all the knowledge in the world. But if you have not love, you're nothing. But knowledge in the service of love, even though it seeks not greatness, the result is that God knows you. This is amazing. But then as we read through chapter 8, we find out that specific puffed up knowledge that Paul is rebuking. And we find out that it has to do with the way that Christians are responding to food offered to idols. Paul says that the, the strong Christians in Corinth recognize that there is only one God. And so, that means that idols, they have no divine power. Therefore, they reason, we can eat meat offered to idols because idols aren't real. But those those Christians whose consciences were weak, who had formerly associated with those idols, when they saw Christians eating food offered to idols, well, this became a stumbling block to them. So here, get this, this is important. Puffed up knowledge in this context is knowledge, true knowledge of the oneness of God and even a right deduction of one's Christian liberty and rights. But it's a knowledge that cares more about one's rights, more about one's freedom, 
than the welfare of Christ's church. They're even willing to cause their brother and sister harm for the sake of their rights. Well, what will Paul say to such Christians? Well, in the most remarkable way, Paul helps them understand God's oneness, the very foundation of their argument, in terms of of Trinitarian love. So let's now glance our eyes over verses 4 through 6 where we see this. So just looking through verses 4 through 6, especially verse 4, do you notice all of the, the quotation marks in verse 4? Here, Paul is quoting the Corinthians who wrote him a letter asking many questions. And as you can see from the quotations, the oneness of God is the very basis of the Corinthians' puffed-up knowledge. Now we have to be clear here. They are right to believe that God is one. In fact, the Jews were instructed to, to pray the Shema daily, which we know as Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This statement, this confession, is the basis not only of the Jewish religion, but also of Christianity. We worship not many gods, but one God. And so, the Corinthians, they had a solid argument. These idols are not gods. There's only one God. But then in verse 6, Paul does the most surprising thing. In verse 6, he includes every word of the Shema. Now, I'll read it to you, and I want you to focus in and try to listen for the pieces of the the Shema. Listen for the words, Lord, God, and one. Lord, God, and one. So Paul says, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So did you hear all the pieces? He's taking the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, and he's helping us see in it what has been true all along, what has been there all along. He's helping us see Christ. The Shema, it says, the Lord, our God, is one. And here, Paul identifies our God. So, the Lord, our God. The our God part. Paul says, that is the Father. And then, remarkably, he identifies the Lord as Jesus Christ. So, when we say, the Lord, our God, is one... We are to understand the Lord our God as inclusive of both God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thus, our confession really is the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. Now, it might seem like Paul is trying to add Jesus into the Shema where where he doesn't really belong, doesn't really mention him. But that is simply not true. Paul here is identifying Jesus as the Lord, the one spoken about in the Shema, whom the Shema confesses is one with God. So thus, the the theologian Richard Bauckham, he rightly concludes here, the unique identity of the one God consists of the one God, the Father, and the one Lord, his Messiah. Now, do you see what Paul is doing here? Where the Corinthians are saying, we worship one God. Paul says, yes, we worship one God. In Trinity, and Trinity, and Unity. Where the Corinthians say, the Lord our God is one. Paul confesses, the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, which we confess in our church, It takes note of Paul's Trinitarian theology, and it uses the Trinity as the very structure of the Christian faith. We see this especially in Q&A 24 of our own catechism. It asks, speaking of the Apostles' Creed, it asks, how are these articles divided? In other words, how is the Apostles' Creed structured? And the answer is, into three parts. God the Father and our creation... God the Son in our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. So while we will be looking at the Apostles' Creed more in the, the weeks to come, the point is that the very structure of the creed, and according to Paul, the, even the structure of the, the Shema in our entire Christian faith, it's Trinitarian. And now Paul's logic here, it also helps us answer question 25 of the catechism. The catechism asks, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer the catechism gives is because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. Three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Now, that's precisely Paul's logic here. Yes, the Corinthians are right. There is only one true eternal God, as the Shema confesses. But Scripture itself, even the Shema itself, affirms distinct persons. So while Paul focuses in on our text, on the Father and on the Son... Elsewhere, we also read of that divine person whom we call the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God. So we affirm three distinct persons. Yet we deny that there are three gods. With Paul and with the rest of Scripture, we affirm one God existing in three persons. Well, with all of this, 
heavy knowledge in mind, we can now return to our original question. What was God doing before creation? Well, we see in 1 Corinthians 8 that even before creation, the one God existed as Father and Son, and as we see from other texts, and Holy Spirit. And the fact that all things were made through the Son means that the Son existed eternally before all things. So so the main point here is that before the Father ever created us, he had a Son. And listen to the way Jesus described their relationship, their eternal relationship in his high priestly prayer in John 17. This is what Jesus said to his Father. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then just a few verses later, Jesus said that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing before creation? He was glorifying his son. He was making much of his son. He was loving his son. One pastor put it well. He said, before God ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. This is the very reason that the Apostle John could say that God is love. It's because God is triune. From all eternity, God has been loving his son. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on for a moment. And I want you to just imagine for a moment a non-Trinitarian God. Perhaps think of Allah, of the Quran, of the Islamic faith. So in in this Islamic system, what was Allah doing before creation? If Allah had no son, if he's not Trinitarian, he has no son to love, can he really be called love? Now, some Islamic scholars have tried to get around this theological conundrum by saying that that Allah looked forward to his creation and he loved his creation beforehand. But I hope you can see why that would be problematic because that would mean that Allah depends upon creation. Allah needs you to be loving Not so with our Trinitarian God. The Father does not need you to love because he loves his Son. And because he does not need you, he is free to love you according to the good pleasures of his own will. It is only a Trinitarian God that can truly be confessed as love. 
For the Father has eternally loved his Son, and the Spirit is the one through whom the Father loves, blesses, and empowers his Son. Christian, this is your God. And this Trinitarian God of love is the one that Paul puts before the puffed-up Corinthians who thought that they could use God's unity to justify their lack of love. Well, how should we respond to this, this knowledge of our triune God? Well, it's quite clear from 1 Corinthians 8 that by holding up before them the Trinitarian God of love, Paul wants the Corinthians to respond with love, to love God, to love one another. If God is eternally love and has loved, has always loved his son, and if God has loved us by giving us his son and by giving us his spirit, will we dare destroy the one whom God has loved because we have some sort of knowledge, some seeking greatness, we have some right. Paul says in verse 11 that by our knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Now do you hear the irony of that? Christ gave up his rights not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped or used for his own advantage. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for you, for your brothers and sisters, for Christ's people. And yet, you're going to hold on to your right to eat meat offered to idols? Really? In light of our Trinitarian God of love, you're going to insist on your own way, your own comforts, your own rights? In verse 12, Paul says that by sinning against your brothers, you sin against Christ. This is serious. Do not dare use Christian liberty or the unity of God or the falsity of other gods to justify your lack of love towards your brother and sister. You cannot make this argument before the Trinitarian God of love. Paul calls it sin and sin against Christ. Instead, Paul concludes in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul here is calling us to love one another sacrificially like God himself has loved us. How can we do any differently? when we believe in a triune God of love, when we trust that this God of love has sent his son to die that we might live, when we believe that we, together with our brothers and sisters, are indwelt with the spirit of this God of love, how could we not love our brothers and sisters? God's word, it calls you 
today to lay down your rights for your brothers and sisters. The gospel is offensive enough. Do not let anything but the offense of the gospel keep people from Christ. This means stop debating on social media about your preferred political party. Do you have the right to voice your opinion? Yes. But Paul says that's the wrong question. It's not about your rights. The question is, should you make your political views a stumbling block to people interested in Christ? And the answer is absolutely not. Christ calls us to deny ourselves, to lay down our own rights, to pick up our cross and to follow him. And we will not do that perfectly in this age. And so we depend ever more upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who did obey perfectly. But still, we try to follow him, asking him for his spirit, for the spirit's help to empower us to live this kind of life, a life of love motivated by the knowledge of our Trinitarian God of love. And so now, let us pray and ask for this Spirit's help. Heavenly Father, we do praise you today for you are a Trinitarian God, which means you are love. And you have freely loved us by giving us your beloved Son and by sending us your Spirit of love. Help us now by your Spirit to lay down our own rights, our own pursuit of greatness, and to love as Christ has loved us. We pray all of this in the name of your Son. Amen.